Looking to take advantage of what Warren Buffett calls the American tailwind of prosperity? The Gabelli Financial Services Opportunity ETF is actively managed by McCray Sykes to invest in companies leveraged to long-term secular trends. This thematic approach provides the tax efficiency and real-time trading benefits of ETFs. Visit Gabelli.com forward slash funds forward slash ETFs forward slash GABF to learn more. ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. Some guests appearing on this program may also be financial sponsors of ETF Prime. The ETF Store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right. Joining me will be Matt Bartolini, head of Spider America's research at State Street Global Advisors. Of course, State Street is currently the country's third largest ETF issuer. And quite simply, Matt is one of the best out there when it comes to analyzing everything going on in the world of ETFs. And I think you're really going to enjoy what we have for you this week because we are very briefly going to look back on uh, 2023 TF lows just to put a bow on the year. But then we're going to spend the majority of our time discussing three mistakes ETF investors made this year and how to potentially correct those mistakes heading into the new year. And I already have the uh, list of these mistakes. This is a good list. They all make a lot of sense to me. Well, actually, I, I guess I should say two of the three do. I'm a little skeptical on the third one, which we'll get into. But I'm very interested to hear Matt's take on these uh, various mistakes. And more importantly, again, how to potentially remedy these mistakes heading into the new year. Now, to start this week, uh, which, by the way, I should note, this is the last ETF Prime episode of 2023. But I now have on the line with me the one and only Todd Rosenbluth, head of research at Vetify. And I would say Todd is going to serve as a uh, nice bridge between 2023 and 2024 because he's going to uh, highlight several equity ETF stories that were pretty big in 2023. And he's going to tell us whether these might carry over into 2024. And then not only that. I am also going to pin Todd down for a couple of uh, ETF predictions for the new year. So let's chat with Todd now. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. $800 billion, I think we have to say that again, $800 billion and counting for an industry that is, is still growing in size is impressive. 
Todd, you get the uh, high honor of closing out 2023 on uh, ETF Prime. How do you like that? I love it. It's great to be with you and great to be with your audience. Hey, uh, before we uh, get into everything here, I do want to say congratulations on this uh, enormous industry news last week, which for listeners, if you missed this, uh, TMX Group announced an agreement to acquire Vetify. So they had made a strategic investment in Vetify earlier this year, but it now looks like they're uh, buying the full thing. So, uh, Todd, any quick comments or uh, reaction to that? Well, First of all, thank you, and thank you to everybody in the community that's been supporting us since this news came out. We're in a quiet period, so I imagine somebody from compliance might come running in the room if I go too far. <laughs> uh, then we're really excited about it, and it's been a, a nice journey. I, I'm sure the audience knows this, but Vetify as a company was only formed in mid-2023, and so we've had a lot to celebrate this year, and I, I posted uh, some content to ETF Trends, not about the deal with TMX, but just recapping from my perspective all the great things that happened. As you know, we had the exchange conference in February of 2023. You were there along with me doing some advisor education, and we'll be back again in February of 2024 with a new agenda, but hopefully the same great audience. Uh, I, we pulled some stats. Uh, we hosted over 230 virtual events this year with more than 60,000 live advisor and some end clients in attendance. Some of these were a new program we have called Symposium, two to three hours diving deeper into a broad asset category. And we made some acquisitions as well. So the the index companies that are behind Robo Globals ETF, Robo ROBO, and the Amplify iBuy ETF, as well as other ones, are now part of the Vetify family. So it's been a great year uh, in the ETF industry and, and looking forward to 2024. But let's recap the year from an ETF perspective, too. Well, let me just say again, congratulations to you and the Vetify team. I'm very happy for you all. And I know I certainly value uh, our partnership together and certainly look forward to continuing that and hopefully taking everything to another level, uh, right? I'm really just trying to keep pace with everything you all are doing on on your side. Uh, okay, so uh, as I mentioned, you do get the uh, high honor of closing out the podcast this year. And I'm looking forward to this. Uh, I think you know Morningstar's Ben Johnson and I did the uh, 2023 ETF industry recap and then last week, your colleague Dave Nottig and I looked ahead to 2024, and I thought both of those were fantastic. But what you and I are going to cover, I, I, I do think will serve as a nice bridge because we're going to look at some of the hottest areas in ETFs this year. And then you're going to offer some thoughts as to whether the momentum can carry over into the new year. And, and then, like I mentioned, I also want to save at least a few minutes at the end to get a couple of quick ETF predictions from you. But um, l let's build this bridge and so last week you published a piece where you highlighted five charts on ETFs recapping equities in 2023. This is posted at ETFtrends.com. And let, let me give the, uh, the lead here. So you say, quote, it's been the year of active equity ETFs, the year of covered call ETFs, and a year when growth and quality has mattered most in the equity market. And then you also have a fifth topic, which we'll uh, get into as well. But let's go through each of these. And the first one, look, active ETFs, those were clearly one of the year's biggest stories, right? I, I know we both covered this topic a ton, uh, but you were early here 
uh, because I know Vetify flagged this as an area of interest pretty early in the year. And then, of course, we saw that interest turn into real inflows. So I, I guess talk about that. And then more importantly, do you expect this to carry over into 2024? Yeah, so the the flagging that we had is, and, and these all came from Vetify, what are, we refer to as Vetified Charts of the Week. As mentioned, we do virtual events almost daily uh, with advisor relationships. We ask them questions about the topic at hand and, and somewhat broader in nature. And so we were asking coming into the year relatively early, I think I published this in late February, uh, about their expectations to increase exposure to active ETFs uh, in the year ahead. And 87% were either somewhat or very likely to do so. And we certainly saw that taking place uh, as active ETFs, uh, in particular active equity ETFs, punched above their weight. I know ITs covered calls in my piece, and we're going to talk about covered calls. So let's put that on the shelf for a moment We've seen it, you know, I think roughly a year ago at this time, if I was not the last guest, I was one of the last guests, we were talking about how successful Capital Group had been with their uh, first year in the ETF marketplace. It's an even been an even more successful year. They now have $18 billion in a not, not two-year-old business, and Capital Group dividend value ETF added $3 billion this year. Dimensional funds past $100 billion in assets under management. They're not even, uh, I think they're just over three years old. Uh, and they're now at $118 billion, uh, if the data I have in front of me is correct, with $4 billion going in to their largest uh, funds. Uh, that's more of a large cap strategy. And, and J.P. Morgan, which has really benefited from covered calls that, again, I know we're going to get to with their equity premium income ETF, but an ETF JGRO, J-G-R-O, uh, which is a more traditional stock picking, uh, not alternative income, but more traditional stock picking ETF, has pulled in more than $500 million. We've seen active equity ETFs gain market share off of a very small base, and I think they're going to continue to do so in 2024. I think my colleague Dave Nadig was a bit more pessimistic about the opportunities, I think more people are going to embrace active ETFs in the year ahead, uh, and we're going to continue to see them punching above their 5 or 6% share of the overall business. Well, well let me ask you this. Um, you, you're right. When I visited with Dave last week, he, he definitely wasn't as bullish on active ETFs moving forward. And if I sort of read between the lines on his, uh, his thought process, I, I think it does ultimately come down to performance because if you're an investor why are you investing in active well you're hoping to outperform whatever the underlying benchmark is and you and i have both seen the data for for years now we know how challenging that can be for active management to uh, generate sustained outperformance and and so I, i guess a question that i would ask you does it all come down to performance for active etfs or is it because the active ETF category is still so uh, small and, and, and nascent overall? There's such a long runway here for growth of the category that performance maybe won't be uh, as important. And with the caveat being, you and I also both know that 
investors and advisors are always, there's going to be a subset that always look to outperform the market. That's never going to change. There's always going to be demand for, for active. But do, do you think performance is a bigger driver here? Or do you just think there's such a long runway because this is still a, a relatively uh, new and budding ETF category? So I, I would choose the latter of the camp, but for a slightly different reason. So I don't think performance is going to matter as much. There are many advisors, many investors that believe in active management, despite the data that tells them that, on average, it is hard to continue to outperform. What is happening is we're seeing more supply. So in the past week, we saw BlackRock launch the second active mutual active ETF run by Rick Reeder. We saw Vanguard in the past month launch two active core or core plus fixed income products. You know, when, when BlackRock and Vanguard are entering into the active ETF marketplace and doing so more aggressively, they each had products beforehand. That to me is a sign that they're going to put their muscle behind educating advisors and because they're hearing from advisors. They're bringing products to market because advisors and investors are interested in it. So if we go broader than equities to active ETFs in general, then I think we still have lots of room to grow for the people who believe in active management. They now have an ETF choice. Uh, and T. Rowe Price uh, has had success doing this as well. And uh, Alliance Bernstein and Morgan Stanley, and I can name all the firms, they're coming into the marketplace with some of their best ideas. I think they're going to be more well-received than people might be concerned about. All right. I'm really glad that you brought up more supply um, because is, is, is follow me here. I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate. Uh, yeah. As you mentioned, a big part of the active ETF stories uh, story has been covered call ETF. So you, you alluded to Jeppy, which might have been the most mentioned ticker on this podcast uh, over the course of the year, the J.P. Morgan Equity Premium Income ETF, or maybe even over the past two years. But we did see a boatload of new launches in the options-based ETF category and several other flavors of options income ETFs uh, coming to market and and really doing pretty well in terms of asset growth. But uh, that said, going back to the supply, you you might be aware, I'm on record as saying I think this entire space is a bubble. I, I, I think there are way too many copycat products that have come to market. There, there's too much supply. So I'm curious as to your thoughts on, on that particular space moving forward. Well, uh, I hear you. I think the word bubble is an easy word to use, and maybe I'm defining it different than you are. But Jeppy has roughly $30 billion, and I pulled it today. It's around the 55th largest ETF in the United States. Let me just give you a couple of other ones that are around it, and you tell me if, if there's too many products related to this, and it's a bubble. So VNQ, which is Vanguard Real Estate ETF, is just slightly larger. LQD, which is the iShares iBox Investment Grade Corporate Bond ETF, uh, is just actually neck and neck. With Jeffy, in terms of assets under management, we certainly have other real estate ETFs, and we certainly have other investment-grade corporate bond ETFs. I think covered calls has been a strategy that's existed outside the ETF universe for years. I remember studying for my Series 7 back when I had hair and learning what a covered call was before ETFs were at all popular uh, to the level of the degree that they are now. We have more of them. Are there too many? 
I don't know. We'll find out if money goes into them. Uh, ETFs like uh, PAPI from Morgan Stanley's Parametric Group uh, or the Goldman Sachs product GPIX. Um, they're different. These products are not all the same as JEPI or JEPQ. I think there's room for more than one successful product from more than one asset manager. Is there enough space? I guess we'll find out at the end of 2024 if these products have gained traction. Yeah. Look, I I love the innovation in the ETF wrapper. I love seeing these strategies uh, be made easily accessible. And I'm going to actually talk a little bit about this with uh, Matt Bartolini here in just a bit. But I, I think from my perspective, the category just feels a little... Faddish. And the way that I would describe that is if you look at 2022, that was probably a perfect environment for covered call strategies, uh, right? We had rates rising rapidly, so it wasn't a good place uh, to, to be in bonds. Uh, these, these strategies could offer some downside protection as the equity markets faltered. But now you look this year, an ETF like JEPI is trailing the S&P 500 by, I, I believe, about 16%. Now, look, I, I know that's it's not designed to, to track the S&P 500. I get that to, for, for listeners out there. My point is I wonder how many investors saw this as a shiny object category, as Eric Balchunas over at Bloomberg might say, piled into the space, and now they're significantly underperforming the market, whereas maybe if they had just stayed invested in more broad-based equities, uh, they would be better off. And, and so I, I think that's what it comes down to for me is that – this, this was a really good place to be for a period of time. And then, as we usually do, we saw a lot of ETF issuers respond by launching products into the category. We see investors look at the category, and now they've underperformed. I, I think that's my concern when I call it a, a bubble. And I wonder if, let's just say, Todd, the markets stay relatively strong in 2024. At some point, investors are going to look at that performance and go, you know what, I need to be invested in the broader markets, not in a covered call strategy. And I could see a scenario where we see outflows from these products, and, and because of how many have come to market, there's just not enough uh, demand to support the, the products that are out there. I, I don't know if you have any, if you want to respond to that, but that, that's how yeah. I view it. Yeah, I mean, I think money has continued to go, let's use Jeffy as the example, in the post trial, money has continued to go in in 2023 despite the fact that it's underperforming, because there are advisors who are concerned about the market, who want to get some income generation available to them and their clients. They want a more defensive approach. And they're, they seem to be okay with having lagging the broader market and giving up some of those gains. This is a more defensive approach. So I don't think people are piling in because of the strong performance in 2022, like we saw with ARC for example, where money went in and chased the performance and then people got burned and then they didn't want to go back. People have continued to put money into these ETFs, and JEPI in particular, in 2023, as a result of it performing more modestly than the broader market. That, to me, is not a bubble. But we can, we can agree to disagree since I know you got a, you know, you got a Bartolini coming up and I got a couple more things, <laughs> including to make up predictions on the fly. Yeah. Look, just to put a, a period on this sent, on this uh, sentence, I'll just say if, if advisors and investors are viewing something like Jeppy as a tool in the toolbox and they understand how it works, how it's going to react in different market environments, fantastic. You, you, you know, I love that. I, I just worry 
whether um, everybody fully understands that. But you know what? This might be a good category uh, for you and I to place another wager on in, in 2024, probably one that I'll, I'll, I'll lose, which I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, all right. Two other equity ETF stories that you uh, flagged. I actually haven't covered either of these in, in much detail, so I thought these were good. So you specifically note the performance of the growth and quality factors. And I think most people are certainly well aware of what growth did this year. And so maybe you can focus more on the quality side. And, th- and then along with that, I'm not going to ask you for an investment call here, but I would be interested to hear whether you expect interest in these factors to stay strong as we move into 2024. Yeah, so well, I want to touch briefly on growth in a second, so please help me come back to it. But but quality, which is one of those terms that you know it when you see it, you think it's in the eye of the beholder. Uh, quality tends to be uh, ETFs that are constructed based on strong balance sheets, strong free cash flow, return on equity and return on assets. And so the, the ETF QUAL, um, was particularly popular. I think it was among the top 10 most popular uh, equity ETFs this year. Uh, in the article I wrote, I wrote about SPHQ, which is the Invesco S&P 500 quality ETF, which through the first 11 months was up 19%, which is slightly underperforming the S&P 500. Um, I think quality is going to remain important in 2024. And those two ETFs, and other ETFs that are cash flow oriented, the Cows ETF from Pacer, Victory has a product uh, that verifies the index provider behind VFLO. Uh, we've seen uh, our, our friend John Davi at Astoria launch the ETF ROE that I know you talked about uh, with Dave in the past. I think these, these are going to resonate well with investors. There's going to be market volatility. There's going to be earnings uncertainty. As the Fed shifts policy, I think high quality makes a lot of sense. And I'll just squeeze my own way back in here before you you respond. Growth was very popular, and I think people very much appreciate it because they they think it's a magnificent seven stocks. Growth was popular or outperformed value. It depends. So depends upon which index and which ETFs you're tracking. So the, the Russell 1000 growth ETF, uh, which is IWF, is beating the iShares Russell 1000 value ETF, IWD, by 3,000 basis points this year. That's what people are thinking. But the S&P 500 versions of these, IVW uh, is versus IVE, it's less than 1,000 basis points because it matters how these companies are classified. And if, if, if I have time to write before I go on vacation tomorrow, I'm going to try to dive into those indexes. The S&P one just rebalanced. And Meta, which used to be a value stock, is growth. Exxon, which used to be a growth stock, is back to being in value. The world can come back together. And so uh, I think that's a story worth paying attention to heading into 2024. Yeah, I'll offer just two quick comments here. So on the growth, and by the way, not as always, not investment advice, but on the growth side, I think we would all agree if you look at valuations in this space, look, it, things look expensive. I, I don't think there's any way around that. I, I actually, um, you, you may have seen this, I, I tweet out way too many memes, by the way, but tweeted one out of like a bunch of sheep walking and said, you, you know, this is how it feels when you're overweight U.S. mega cap growth because it, it just feels like you're going with a herd, you're going with a crowd. 
and, and maybe heading to slaughter at some point. But where I'm heading is I think it's tough not to stay allocated to this space until something changes, until we have some good reason to believe that growth and, and in particular mega cap growth isn't going to work anymore. So I, I expect the uh, the interest and momentum in this space to continue into 2024. On the quality side, I, I agree with what you're saying. And I, I think right now a lot of people, uh, their base case is that we'll have a soft landing uh, with the economy. But if things get a little dicey there, I, I think investors are certainly going to look to allocate more to quality stocks, quality holdings. And um, I, I think there's a good case to be made there. Again, just if you look at valuations overall to what I was saying on the growth side. Now, certainly you can have both growth and quality stocks. But just if, if we're separating those factors, I do think we're going to see uh, some interest in quality. Uh, Todd, r- real quick, because, again, I do want to get to your uh, your predictions. You, you had one other story, and I, I really like this one because – this was a huge story earlier in the year that looked like it could really be the defining story of 2023. But as of now, everything appears okay. And that's the regional bank failures back in, what what was that, February or or, or March? That seems like ages ago. But you know the underperformance of the financial select sector spider ETF, ticker XLF. So that's up uh, about 11% this year versus 25%. Uh, 26% on the S&P 500. I would also toss in the Spider S&P regional banking ETF, ticker KRE as well. That's down about 8%. And again, I'm not looking for you to make an investment call here, but I, uh, what, what do you think about the financial sector moving forward? Do you, like, do you think this is an area advisors and investors are interested in potentially dabbling in? I do, uh, because I think we're going to be in a different interest rate environment in 2024 than we've been in 2023. And, you know, XLF, since I'm using that as my example, has outperformed the broader market in the past month as we've seen bond yields uh, and the 10-year Treasury uh, pull back notably. So value tends to do better in a or can do better in a falling rate environment um, and financials being the largest or one of the largest of those sectors I do think financials and value in general is going to perform better uh, in 2024 on a relative basis than than we saw in 2023. And so I, I think there's I think advisors are going to benefit from having uh, exposure to banks uh, and and in particular, you know, I'm, I'm going to pull it up. KRE is up you know, three times the S and P 500 in the past month. It's up 15 percent. Uh, so. It's worked if people think we're going to have 2024 that looks a lot like the the past month. Yeah, and for listeners, I will be talking more about the uh, sector spiders with Matt Bartolini here in just a few. Um, Todd, with our remaining time, let's get a couple of ETF predictions from you. Though, <laughs> okay, let me back up to properly yeah, put a bow <laughs> to properly put a bow on 2023 uh, I unfortunately have a little housekeeping to do here because you and I had a bet on one of my predictions for this year which was that physical gold ETFs would garner over 5 billion in inflows and I have been precisely wrong on that prediction they've seen something like what 4 billion in outflows now so, so would you like to take a, a very quick victory lap in front of the ETF Prime audience? Yeah. So, first of all, what I'm excited about is that every year you put forward five predictions. And I, when, in early 2023, I asked you to put your money where my mouth 
was going to be and have you buy me a steak dinner in New York uh, if or the vice versa if you were correct. So, yes, uh, the price of gold has actually gone up. You should have done better. Investors just weren't buying gold ETFs. And I, I lucked into this victory. Uh, you know, we have a, a week or so left in the ETF trading year. But I feel pretty good about you buying me a steak dinner uh, in early 2024 on gold. Yeah, there's no question. You can and... pay in cash if you want to <laughs> instead of gold. Hey, maybe I'll pay in Bitcoin, uh, digital gold. But uh, what, what I was going to say is, you know, I I have a very strong track record with my annual ETF predictions. And this year has been absolutely brutal. And I'll, I'll be talking about this more in the next couple of weeks. But I, I just completely missed the boat. On, I I think I might have gone zero for five or one for one for five or something on my five predictions. But uh, in any event, on that note, let's move on and uh, and talk about twenty twenty four. Maybe just give us two ETF predictions for next year. Yeah, I'll I'll do the very easy one, and we can then get you to say Bitcoin uh, spot Bitcoin ETF uh, <laughs> on air. I expect that we will have multiple spot Bitcoin ETFs. By the time the exchange conference in February 2024 takes place, I think everybody is in agreement that it's of among our friends that this is likely to happen in January. Eric Balchunas will owe me a different steak dinner because I predicted it wouldn't happen in 2023. My easy prediction is we will have multiple products uh, by February 2024. And I think we're going to see over the full year, I think we'll see, you know, between five and ten billion dollars of net new money coming in. Uh, and I'll probably firm that up as, as I have greater confidence in who's actually coming to market and what price uh, the products are. But I think there'll be demand for them over time, not the first day, week uh, of, of the ETF trades. Yeah, I like that prediction, of course. I don't think you're exactly going out on a limb there with that one. But uh, I like I like the prediction or the call on the uh, the potential, you know, 5 to $10 billion. I think really when we look at this story, Next year, that's going to be the fascinating part to track, right? Just how much demand, because, and I've, I've probably been a part of this, but there's been so much hype around a spot Bitcoin ETF that uh, you wonder if the, the actual demand will meet the hype. And I think there's a case to be made that, that perhaps it won't. I, I'm optimistic on uh, how these will do overall, but I think it'll be interesting. By the way, before I forget, um, I, I do have to mention, because I, I talked about this on Twitter, I asked uh, people to offer me up their best meme on a spot Bitcoin ETF. And I, honestly, I was a little disappointed in the showing, but I have to give it to uh, Athanasios Serafagus over at Bloomberg. He had this one, which was a meme template from the movie Casino, which I don't know if you know this, Todd. I, I can't remember if we talked about this. I absolutely love mob movies. That's my favorite genre of movies. I'm going to have a hard time explaining this meme. I'm just going to tell you to go to my Twitter feed, check it out. But it had to do with if the grayscale conversion is held up. So, in other words, grayscale doesn't launch at the same time as competitors. Uh, and it had some of the other competitors just beating up GBTC while grayscale watched. Uh, but I, I, I actually, I'm glad I brought that up because I think that's another interesting story to watch, right, is just the timing of when these spot Bitcoin ETFs come to market and all the marketing around it. I'm assuming you saw the uh, ad from Bitwise yesterday with the most interesting man in the world and then uh, our good friend Matt Hogan over over at Bitwise. Did you see that? Yeah, and it reminded me of your upcoming guest, Matt Bartolini, who did something uh, on mid-caps uh, with 
uh, a movie star as well that he got to be a part of. Maybe tease him on that. Can I squeeze in my second? Yes, please, uh, please. Uh, loftier in theory uh, prediction that you can hold me to is that I do think we are going to get approval for ETF share classes of existing mutual funds in 2024. I think once we get spot Bitcoin ETFs off of the front burner uh, with the SEC, they'll get to move on to what is, I think, a much bigger opportunity for the ETF marketplace. Uh, we have, uh, you know, it's just over a year ago. I think it was February uh, of 2023, when when Emily Graffio Bloomberg broke what I thought was the you know exciting news of the first firm, we now have seen dimensional funds and Fidelity uh, aim to convert existing uh, mutual fund products and offer an ETF share class. We've seen FM look to go the other way. I think this is going to happen by the end of 2024. I don't have a lot of facts to back me up, other than it feels like the time will be right. Real quick, going back to your uh, note on celebrity advertising, that was Elizabeth Banks advertising the uh, the mid-caps for State Street, right? I, I didn't know. I, I wonder if Matt Bartolini actually was in an ad with her. With her he was. Him. He was. He okay. was, which is what's triggering for me That's uh, for it. And I honestly could, just couldn't remember Elizabeth's name on the fly. Yeah. Bartolini rolls off the tongue so much better than Banks. But uh, anyways, uh, it, yeah, sorry. Uh, so going to your second prediction, do, do you think there's going to be any limitations in terms of what the SEC allows here? Because as is, is we've talked quite a bit about, you know, these filings out there from Fidelity and Dimensional and PGIA, they're for active ETFs. Vanguard has only been approved for index-based ETFs on the multi-share class. And then if you look at some of those firms that have filed specifically, we know Dimensional, and, and they've made a strong case. I had uh, Gerard O'Reilly on the show talking about their case for a multi-share class, but you know, their their products are much more, I'm going to say, index-like versus, say, a true uh, stock-picking active management. I, I'm just wondering, do you think there's going to be limitations on what the SEC allows with the multi-share? I don't process? think there's going to be limitations to what the SEC allows. I think there's going to be limitations to what asset managers want to offer. You're going to have to turn these into fully transparent products. Right. So I don't think we're going to see a concentrated... Uh, mutual mutual fund have an ETF share class. Uh, I don't think the firms that have chosen not to go that route with full transparency aren't going to do so. I think it's going to be broad, active, you know, systematic oriented products that, that we're going to certainly come out of the gate. And I think those are the fr- products that Dimensional and Fidelity, among others, are, are more likely to, to bring to market. Yeah, well, I, I think we both would agree uh, if that does happen next year, just a huge tailwind for ETF growth, in my opinion, because it's going to allow these traditional fund managers to maintain that lucrative 401k business, uh, w- which is in mutual funds, and really much more aggressively pursue the higher growth ETF market. So uh, I, I agree that's a huge story to watch, and uh, I think one you and I will be talking quite a bit next year. But Todd, uh, just another fantastic year connecting with you and everyone at Vetify. Uh, as I was mentioning earlier, I, I really love the partnership here. I'm thrilled to see all of your success and, and your team's success, and I can't wait to kick off the new year, which, by the way, I will be calling the year of the spot Bitcoin ETF. Well, I, I look forward to seeing you down at exchange in warmer weather in February, and if not beforehand, uh, enjoying that steak dinner where, more importantly, we get to hang out and talk ETFs uh, in front of however many people want to join us. Hey, thank you. Hope you and your family enjoy the holidays. You too, Nate, and to everybody listening.
That was Todd Rosenbluth, head of research at Vetify. Entrepreneur shares was one of the first thematic investment strategies, and we were the very first in entrepreneurship, innovation, and disruption. We have over 30 years of academic research that we developed at Babson College, the number one school in entrepreneurship. And from this, we developed a proprietary entrepreneur factor, which demonstrates how investors can outperform peer benchmarks over time. Our model works best during declining interest rate environments such as now, and we have two ETFs investors can follow. One is ENTR, which is U.S. large caps, and one ETF is ERSX, which focuses on non-U.S. small caps. Calling all financial advisors. Get ready to boost your practice, portfolios, and network at the Exchange Conference, happening in sunny Miami from February 11th to the 14th, 2024. At Exchange, you'll gain valuable insights to grow your practice and sharpen your investment acumen with the top investment experts. But that's not all. By attending, you can earn over 10 CE credits and join a network that goes beyond business. Join a community that's dedicated to your success. Learn more and register now at exchangeetf.com. joined by Matt Bartolini, head of Spider America's research at State Street Global Advisors, who currently offers about 140 ETFs, nearly $1.2 trillion in assets. And I always say nobody in the ETF space is more on top of flows and performance data and really everything occurring underneath the surface of the ETF industry than Matt, who is now on the line with me from Boston, Matt, welcome back to the uh, podcast. How have you been? I've been great. I'd be, you know, even better considering your Chiefs beat my Patriots because that means we're probably going to get a top two pick. So I'm happy. We are the new dynasty. You're you're the old dynasty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't go that far, but uh, sure. All right. Uh, look, I'm really excited about our topic this week because uh, you're going to discuss three mistakes ETF investors made this year and then offer some potential uh, remedies to these mishaps, shall we say. And uh, I'll say that if investors only made three mistakes this year, they're probably way better off than most, because I feel like everyone was pretty doomsday-ish coming into the year. Uh, however, before we uh, we get to those, let's tie a bow on 2023, because I just mentioned nobody covers ETF flows better than you do. And you are actually, I don't know if you know this, you're the last guest on the podcast this year. So, uh, that was great. Yeah, so, so just give us your overall summary of 2023 as you look back on what we saw from uh, ETF flows. Yeah, I mean, it's been an interesting year. Uh, so as we stand today, $546 billion, So that would be the fourth consecutive year that ETFs have surpassed $500 billion of flows in the calendar year. It's the third most, uh, right behind 2022, which had $618 billion, once you account for the uh, mutual fund ETF conversions. Um, and then you had $905 billion in 2021. So pretty strong year. What I think is interesting when you dig beneath the surface, though, is that 80% of those flows have gone to two mutually exclusive groups. So roughly about 55% of those flows went into low-cost vehicles. Um, and low-cost ETFs, roughly, based on our definition, which I think is pretty rigorous, 
um, they basically have a 48% market share of overall assets. So it's obviously an increasing amount of usage, right? 55% share of flows versus 48% market share. The other flows, 25% of them went into active funds. And active ETFs only have roughly about a 6.5% market share. So a massive uptick in usage, particularly given that overall active flows this year are $125 billion, which is a record. And assets have now swelled to $523 billion. And there are, you know, 1,300 active ETFs out there, which, you know, that's a big number, but some of it's a little bit inflated because of those defined outcome funds that have calendar year vintages. But still, it's pretty noteworthy. And I think the fact that those two areas receive such large inflows reinforces the secular usage of ETFs for strategic asset allocation purposes, and not so much that ETFs are just for these tactical sort of day trading varieties. Um, but I think the other thing is, again, sort of, you know, bifurcating what we've seen over the last two months where this rally was really kickstarted with the idea of, you know, rate cuts. Um, before the, this rally, those percentages were much higher because there was such a hesitancy, a reluctancy to express risk in this market, um, where you did see those tactical elements having, uh, you know, pretty much outflows, right? If you think sectors, sectors were in net outflows, and they still are, but they were like 15 billion of outflows. High yield was in 15 billion of outflows. But since the rally, we started to see those tactical usages come back. Sectors had 7 billion in November. High yield ETFs posted record flows in November and have already added another 3 billion. But I think this year just really underscores and underpins the secular use case of ETFs to build robust strategic asset, asset allocation portfolios that are fee efficient, tax efficient, but also where you can now start to express active strategies that have identifiable track records because a lot of them do now. Just so I'm following on those two broader trends that you mentioned, so flows into uh, low-cost ETFs and then flows into active ETFs, you, you mentioned these being mutually exclusive groups. Yeah. And maybe I wasn't tracking fully, but I, I would argue that if you look at the quote-unquote rise of active ETFs overall, I would say a lot of the flows have gone into what I would call low-cost active Right. If you if you look at some of the issuers out there and the expense ratios, I'm just curious, how do you how do you think about those two categories as, as being mutually exclusive? So low cost active is kind of like a cap that barks. Right. It's still active. It's still going to charge a premium over what you get for just traditional beta. I see. Um, and if you look at what our funds have, like we have SPLG, it's two basis points and. Some of the low-cost active, which, yeah, that's not the 100 basis point, you know, legacy mutual fund style. Uh, maybe, you know, you're looking at the 15 to 16 basis points, but you're still an order of magnitude far greater than what you can get for just the lowest beta. And that's how we build up this process is that we actually look at, you know, where the midpoint of the category is and then start to move lower into some of the bottom decile of, of fees. And that's how we get a group that is really, really low cost. You know, when you're, you're talking about high-yield ETFs at five basis points versus a high-yield um, uh, active ETF that might be 35, like, that's a pretty big difference. And so that's how they're mutually exclusive. Um, and, and they are. Like, when we bifurcate these two categories together, there's no overlap. And I think that actual, actually helps sort of indicate buying behavior motivations. No, that makes perfect sense. You're right. If you look at something like SPLG at two basis points, uh, even what would be considered low cost active is is what you know ten times <laughs> more expensive, yeah. uh, fifteen times, twenty times more expensive. So that that makes sense. Um, with overall ETF flows, you, you know, to landing somewhere 
what are they at? Five? Would you say five forty-six billion right now? Uh, yeah, five forty-six. So, so let's say they land somewhere close to six hundred billion. Can you offer any context on that? Because coming into the year, I actually made the prediction that ETF flows would hit a trillion dollars this year. And so, on one hand, for me, uh, it's tough not to look at that whatever five hundred and fifty, six hundred billion and feel some disappointment. But on the other hand, as you noted. This is going to be the third best year of inflows ever. So, so can you offer some context here, other than maybe I just made a bad prediction? <laughs> um, no, I think I, I think part of it is some of those flows that you probably were projecting to go into ETFs went into money market funds, right? Money market funds took in a trillion dollars. You know, one of the big gainers of the ETF industry were these ultra short duration government bond ETFs. Up until basically the last two months, where we saw a significant rally, but if we look at just you know that ultra ultra short term category, they took in you know roughly twenty one percent of all fixed income flows, but yet they only account for fourteen percent of the overall fixed income assets. And again, this is before the or this is after we saw roughly twelve billion leave in the last two months. So I think your projection maybe uh, if you wait a year, I think you might get there, right? So I think the, the inflows into the money market funds, you had T-bill at 5.5%, you know, that kind of was the whole idea of T-bill and chill. That's not going to be the case in 2024. Um, so, I, you know, I, the, the, I think there's going, there still is a lot of strength in the ETF industry, right? I mean, just the fact that you have $546 billion, third most ever. Um, I think the one other thing beneath the surface is that, you know, we're at $197 billion for fixed income ETFs. They're likely to hit 200 billion. You know, there's only three billion away, and we have a couple more trading days left. That's really impressive, given that you know the AG up until a couple of days ago was looking to have its third consecutive year of negative returns. So people were still allocating strategically to fixed income, and the tactical underpinnings were going into short-term bond exposures. But when the rally flipped, they where'd they go? They went into high yield, right? And I think that sort of showcases the the diversity. Uh, and the choice within fixed income ETFs as well. I'm just going to use your first point on money market funds as the uh, big excuse for my bad prediction. I like that. Flows into <laughs> money market funds, <laughs> which I, I do yeah, think I mean, a lot too. But. It's like why Patrick Mahomes isn't going to win the MVP this year. He has no wide receivers. Still a good quarterback. This is going to be wide receivers. All right, let's continue with the sports analogies because uh, I, I love to have you talk about fourth quarter ETF flows. And, and for listeners uh, who aren't aware, you publish a monthly piece on ETF flows. And I, I would say like 90% plus of these have some sort of sports reference, right? <laughs> and in your most recent piece, you, you talked about fourth quarter comebacks in the NBA. And of course, you, you somehow worked in the, the 2002 Celtics and, and tied that to fourth quarter ETF flows. But on a serious note, why do ETF flows tend to make a comeback in the fourth quarter? Are there any specific reasons you can point to? I mean, we're seeing monster uh, inflows into SPY just over the past week or two. Yeah, and it's not all sports references. I did make a geological reference in the (laughs) September issue, which I think went over many many of folks' heads. Um, It was very very much of a deep cut. Um, But, yeah, for the fourth quarter flows, uh, you know, part of it is, is SPY, right? Part of it's going to be SPY. Um, and we're seeing that in the last few days. But I would say, you know, more broadly, there's sort of four factors. Uh, the first being tax motivations. So you have a lot of mutual funds declaring capital gains. You have also perhaps, and we've, we've seen this as it relates to SPY, 
Um, you have, you know, single stocks that are maybe trading at losses and you sell those, you own SPY and you basically market hedge for the rest of the year and then go back into the stocks in the new year. And that could be a variety of, you know, either retail traders or hedge funds, what have you. So tax motivation, again, those mutual funds posting capital gains, that's a reason to act. We've seen people leave and then go into ETFs and that can add as an accelerant to fund flows in the fourth quarter. Um, there are also some structural impacts. Again, this is sort of very much spy specific. So, you know, if you're holding futures over year end, there's a different tax treatment, even though you haven't realized those gains. Um, you could hold spy instead of futures and therefore you're not going to be subject to those tax consequences on an unrealized basis. The other one, again, this is more specific from a tactical usage well, relative to either funds like SPY or other ones with a heavy derivative ecosystem, you know, um, some of the tech, more tech-heavy uh, funds from competitors. You know, there's some arbitrage trades that you can do based on the funding environment of the futures market where it might be more beneficial to hold, hold physicals um, relative to synthetics. Again, very super technical. So I would say these are like these structural um, or operational impacts of ETFs that are really, really interesting when you dig into them. But on the face of it, they're, they're probably more accounting-specific than anything else. And the fourth one is just window dressing. Um, I think yeah. that's pretty common. But, you know, we do see the seasonality take place. And, you know, in our business, we see it with SPY a lot, sectors, and some of the other more heavy liquidity vehicles, too. Yeah, it's amazing. I just feel like every single year it's the same story where we, we just see these massive flows in the fourth quarter. So do you think we'll, we will end up around $600 billion for the year, if you had a guess? I mean, we're at 546 now. $600 billion seems like a lot, given we only have, you know, roughly uh, right. Couple weeks. eight trading days. You know, I would probably put. I'd probably peg it around five seventy two. Yeah, if I had to, if I had to get. I like the specificity there. Um, all right, before yeah. we move on, because I, I don't want to get too much further lost in the weeds on flows. But every time you are on the podcast, I, I just love asking you about the sector spiders because I, I truly believe, Matt, nobody has a better handle on ETF sector flows and performance than you two, than you do. And I was uh, looking at at really both of those this morning. Here's what stood out to me. The technology sector is leading in flows, which I don't think that's a huge surprise to anyone, but consumer discretionary is second. And then if you look at the outflow side, it's energy and healthcare by far are, are the worst uh, in, in terms of outflows. And so, again, I don't want to get too far in the weeds here, but what, what do you make of sector ETF flows and performance in 2023? It's, it's fine what has worked. There are three sectors that are outperforming the broader S&P 500 this year, tech, Consumer, uh, consumer discretionary and communication services. Those three sectors are the only ones with significant and noticeable inflows this year. Those together have taken in $16 billion this year. The rest of the sector complex has had $23 billion of outflows, led by healthcare, which had the worst, around $9 billion. And the reason there is, you know, in a market devoid of growth, because earnings growth was flat, you buy growth, right? And those three sectors were reflective of high growth, high growth expectations, AI-fueled frenzies, market concentration with dominant leaders, strong price momentum, and the ones like healthcare that saw outflows, it's a defensive sector that was not really sought after because a recession never came, right? And I think a lot of people probably piled in in 2022 uh, and hope, not hopes, but sort of preparing for an economic slowdown and a recessionary environment, and that recession never came. And so your style within sectors of buying what, have, what has worked, right? More of a momentum chase than anything else. 
With uh, sector ETF flows overall, and again, sector ETFs not having a a great year, do you think thematic ETFs have anything to do with that at all? Not that thematic ETFs have had a a great year flow-wise, but just that maybe they're capturing some attention that otherwise would have gone into traditional sector ETFs? No. I mean, we have the, the sector flows that I'm referencing, we actually strip out a lot of the thematics just because we think the, the motivations are going to be a little bit different there. Thematics are plagued with even worse trends. You know, they've had outflows, I think, something to the effect of like 10 out of the, you know, 12 months this year. Um, in, in, again, in an environment with high real rates, if you, a lot of these thematic funds hold a lot of unprofitable firms, uh, that are really expensive because their earnings you know, again, they're negative. Um, uh, that's not a very conducive environment for uh, sort of risk taking, and we, we've seen that they have had 2.6 billion of outflows based on our classification. Which again, everyone can have different classifications. We, we tend to like ours. Uh, 2.6 billion of outflows in 2023. The only area with actual inflows is unsurprisingly robotics and AI. Right. So without that, the flow picture would be even worse. So I don't think they're taking away. I just think going into this year, there's a little hesitancy to express risk. You had a risk event around the regional banking crisis in March. You had continued recessionary fears and drumbeats out there. You do have an earnings recession, and you had concentrated market returns. So when the returns are that concentrated, it's hard to make a specific allocation outside of the benchmark. And you saw that within sectors that bought the top three sectors. And, you know, Next year, if there's a broadening of the rally, you would probably see some mean reversion and, and more um, uh, sort of convicted stance and sector flows where you have more diversity. Well, what a great recap of uh, 2023 TF flows. I knew you would knock the cover off the ball on that. Um, all right, with our remaining time. Let's get to these three mistakes ETF investors made this year, which you have provided me with those three mistakes, right? You've already given me the list. And so I thought I'll tee these up. You can maybe offer a little bit of color on each one. And then uh, I would say more importantly, offer the potential remedy for 2024. And as always, none of this is investment advice. Listeners, do your own homework. I know everyone gets tired of me saying that, but uh, we're here to hopefully just help educate and offer unique perspective. You need to decide on your own what makes sense for you. Uh, And so with that, Matt, let's go through these. And the first one, um, I I like this. You say ETF investors under-allocated to gold while the rest of the world bought it. And I'm not sure if you're aware of this. I was actually just visiting with uh, Vetify's Todd Rosenbluth. So one of my 2023 ETF predictions was that physical gold ETF inflows would exceed $5 billion in assets. It's been exactly the opposite, right? Just brutal outflows, even though gold is up 11% this year, and it's outperformed the S&P 500 if you go back to the beginning of, of last year. So, so what's going on here with gold? Yeah, and I would sort of couch this as not as like three mistakes, but sort of three missed opportunities, right? To try to be a little bit more positive and constructive, because uh, we all make mistakes <laughs> in this world, but we can, there can be, you know, missed opportunities. And I think gold is one of them. You know, like you, you referenced, you know, uh, gold is up double digits this year. It hit an all time high. Central banks have bought more. There's been more fundamental demand. Um, in an environment like that, you know, if you take a person off the street and you say, hey, look, this is an asset that is up double digits, it's at an all-time high, and you mention that all these other people are buying it, and you, how much do you think uh, ETF investors bought? They, they probably would have done the same thing and projected, like, oh, $5 billion of inflows. Probably. That makes sense. Um, and there's been outflows. And there's been outflows in you know, more than half 
the, the month this year. So that's a real missed opportunity. And I think some of it is, you know, again, trying to parse through all the information is, again, you know, maybe they didn't want to be in defensive asset uh, when there is no recession or, or what have you. Um, but actually, the macro backdrop has been supportive because the dollar has fallen and the dollar has a negative correlation to gold. So I just think it's a missed opportunity. And I think the remedy is pretty easy in this one is to maybe reevaluate your allocation to gold this year. You know, if you have a strategic allocation and you maybe pared it down, uh, consider, you know, going back up to it because there's strategic benefits long term. Uh, if you don't own any, you know, do the work. Put the work in and you, know, you can visit our website, talk to any of our, our, anyone on our gold team about the, the potential benefits that gold can provide in a portfolio. Um, so I think in the remedy for this missed opportunity is quite easy. Just, you know, do the homework and, and try to think about where gold can fit in your portfolios because if it was in your portfolio this year and last year, that's, it would be additive to your 60-40 returns. Yeah, and of course, State Street does offer uh, two very popular gold ETFs in GLD and GLDM. Um, all right, the second, what, what we'll call missed opportunity that ETF investors uh, had in 2023 was over allocating to derivative income funds based on past returns. Uh, and you said that led to a large sum of money underperforming the market this year and uh, missing out on gains. And And once again, I love this. I was just talking about this in, in the prior segment, and you didn't give me any examples here, but I'm going to offer up the obvious one if you don't mind, uh, which is JEPI, the J.P. Morgan Equity Premium Income ETF, because this thing took in $13 billion this year. And I, I checked this morning, it's underperformed the S&P 500 by 16%, 16%. So uh, give us some color on this one. And then, again, I would say more importantly, explain what you think the potential remedy is. Yeah, I mean, this isn't sort of admonishing any single funds. You know, the derivative income category is there to produce income, and the way you do that is by modifying a risk factor, by selling volatility and and selling calls to funnel income back into the strategy. Um, I think the the missed opportunity is, you know, it's sort of the shiny toy syndrome, right? A lot of assets went into it, you know, in in some regards, maybe using it as a core of a portfolio for income generation. The, the missed opportunity remedy here is, you know, you can continue to use these strategies. Again, they are effective at producing income, which is what their, you know, objective is. But I think when, you know, comparing this to other income producing asset classes that had not seen inflows, this is where the missed opportunity is because, you know, again, up until the past two months, high yield and senior loan ETFs, they hadn't had any inflows. And when you look at the income potential of, a high yield bond ETF or of a senior loan ETF, or even again, you know, not to always showcase our funds, but want an active fund that blends those two together. The income profile, particularly on a, even more so on a total return basis, right, um, is really strong, right? It's actually better than what you would get this year in that sort of derivative income category. So, this opportunity is sort of honing in on sort of the brand new way to get income and not realizing that. The traditional sources, given the rate environment, um, can awful, also offer income plus total return, and that that was a missed opportunity this year where we saw, again, up until like the last month and a half, a severe underallocation to credit, and credit has been supportive this year, not only from an income perspective, but on a total return basis as well. Couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, I, I think that derivative income category, it did become the shiny object ca- uh, category. And so some investors became enamored with that and forgot about some, some other categories that work. But 
Uh, I I love that one. All right. The third missed opportunity you noted was ETF investors increasing home bias. And you pointed out that uh, this home bias also comes complete with increased concentration risk, which I'm assuming uh, you're referring to the top heaviness of uh, market cap weighted indices. Now, I I do have a pushback for you on this, uh, and and that's because I think I know what you're going to say. But first, give us your rationale and the uh, potential remedy on this. Yeah, so the home bias comes from the fact that 80% of equity flows have gone into U.S.-focused exposures this year, which is right in line with the AUM. So the home bias has been like ongoingly um, implemented for basically the life of ETFs. But the, re- the home, home bias is reinforcing that concentration concerns because the, this year's returns were heavily concentrated, where the Magnificent Seven made up two-thirds of the S&P 500's return, and those stocks now make up 30% of the overall market capitalization. So the home bias is now really a Magnificent Seven bias as well. Now, if you think about it, in then massively super back-of-the-envelope math, right? It says if 80% of the flows went into U.S. exposures and seven stocks make up 30%, all else equal, you're looking at roughly 20 to 25% of all the flows went to just seven stocks. So home bias is now concentration risk. Now, you can parse out this missed opportunity in many different ways, and your pushback is 100% valid. And the, maybe the home bias doesn't mean anything more because how much, particularly those seven firms, but also others within the U.S., how much those firms generate revenue overseas. So the you know, S&P 500, you know, compared to maybe 30 years ago, is way more globally diverse from a revenue perspective. But the big thing about this is, is that regionally, drivers of returns are very different. And if you have different drivers of returns, that can lead to diversification. I think a good example of this is that I bet if you ask anybody, they say, what was the best performing region this year? They'll just be like, oh, the U.S., not realizing that the Eurozone equities have done better year-to-date as of today. So that's kind of a missed opportunity if you're only allocating into the U.S. So I think that that's kind of it. The whole takeaway is that maybe it's okay to have a bit of a home bias, just given how globally diverse firms are. But maybe don't do 80% of the allocation. You know, maybe come down a little bit, 70%, bring in some diversification, pick up how, you know, different regions are impacted differently by, you know, economic trends or what have you. So this missed opportunity is just sort of understanding how your money is being allocated. And strategically, if you're always doing 80%, that's concentration risk too. Yeah, we only have about a minute left. My, my main pushback on this, Matt, is that, International stocks have been a a dog for the past decade now. Like if I look at two ETFs tracking the MSCI EFA and MSCI uh, emerging markets, they're up about 53% and 18% respectively over the past 10 years versus the S&P 500 up 213%. And those numbers actually get worse if you go back, say, 15 years. And I just feel like every year we keep hearing this is going to be the year for uh, international, right? Just wait. It, it's undervalued. U.S. stocks are overvalued. This is a, a, a no-brainer. And just about every year we're disappointed. Now, I, obviously, and I've talked about this plenty on the podcast, I'm a believer in being globally diversified. I, I just think it's difficult for a lot of advisors and investors when you look at that uh, allocation. Again, go back 10, 15 years, it, it hasn't done much in a portfolio. So I, I just think it's going to be hard for people to increase that exposure until they see a reason otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't disagree. I just think if you're going 80% into the U.S., you know, maybe you're leaving a little um, 
you know, putting too much into to one allocation. And I think that's the big thing is just sort of understanding how the assets are being implemented. And, you know, like I said, 70% is just a little bit better. And so that's sort of a, one of the missed opportunities is, identi- is, is just the fact that, you know, again, Eurozone equities did, did better this year, but also this home bias is now manifesting itself into sort of concentration risks. And perhaps you can even go into like mid caps or small caps. So there's just different things you can do from an allocation perspective. Well, Matt, we will have to leave it there. Uh, I hope you and your family enjoy the holiday season. Certainly look forward to connecting again uh, in the new year. Thank you for joining me this week. Yeah, thank you. That was Matt Bartolini, head of Spider America's Research at State Street Global Advisors. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, ER Shares. If you would like to learn more about the ER Shares Entrepreneurs ETF or the ER Shares Next Gen Entrepreneurs ETF, you can visit entrepreneurshares.com. I also want to take this opportunity to thank you for uh, listening to the podcast this year. I, I really appreciate it. This is something I love doing each week. I, I have so much fun with this podcast, and I'm truly grateful to everyone for taking the time to join me. So thank you, and I'll be right back here in the new year. 